want you to think about the words of the song that you just sang. So Jesus, we love you. Oh, how we love you. You are the one our hearts, what? Adore. Okay, well, that is like the perfect introduction to what we're going to be talking about today, because what we're going to talk about is the role of obedience in our mission to living as renewing agents of God. And the reason I say it's the perfect setup is because what fuels every authentic expression of Christian obedience is love. That's it. So in other words, none of us should ever, although we fall into these patterns, but the gospel should bring us out of these patterns. None of us should ever say, none of us should ever think, none of us should ever live as though if I obey God, then maybe, I don't know, hopefully, kind of, sort of, someday, possibly, he might accept me. No, 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 no. what is the gospel? Because it doesn't have to do with my obedience. That's fallible. It has to do with the obedience of Jesus. It's, no, 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 here's the reason I obey God. I obey God because as a result of the performance of Christ on my behalf, plus His life, sufferings, death, burial, and resurrection to pay the penalty for my sin, here's the deal. I am not conditionally accepted. I'm not mostly accepted. I'm not partially accepted. I am fully and irrevocably accepted, and there's nothing I can do to mess that up. And here's what that does in my heart. It makes me adore Him. <laughs> and then I want to follow Him. That's the way it works. We shouldn't say or think, well, if I obey God, then maybe He'll be happy with me. Do you know what the Bible says? It says that if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven, washed, made new, brought into family of God, and guess what? He rejoices over you, even you, with singing. That should move us in here. If I obey God, maybe He'll bless me. No, no, no. All of the blessings of Christ are already yours. Free gift. You don't have to earn it. You just have to receive it. It's pretty simple. If I obey God, here's the one that gets me, then maybe the Lord will love me like I can earn that with all of my imperfect obedience. But the gospel comes and relieves us of that pressure and says, no, let's just do it this way. Okay, so here's the way it works. Look at the cross if you want to know if God loves you. God in love gave His Son for me and for you. And here's what the love of God does as we engage with it through personal worship and corporate worship, as, as we deal with it, as we grow in it, it changes our heart, it transforms us, it makes us in return, it creates within us a reciprocating love. In other words, it causes us to now suddenly love Him. And here's how love is expressed toward Him in terms of obedience. Listen to how Jesus connects obedience and love. It's pretty simple. He says, if you love me, then what's going to happen? Well, you know, then maybe occasionally if it's convenient for you and you want to throw me a bone, then possibly you'll obey my commandments. It's not what he says. He says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Why? Because suddenly you'll want to. That's the reason. You won't do it out of duty. You won't do it out of obligation. You won't do it out of shame. You won't do it out of guilt. You won't do it out of responsibility. You'll do it because all of a sudden, and quite to your own surprise, you'll realize, this is kind of crazy, but I think I want to do this. And then as you begin to survey your life and you go back six weeks or more likely six months or even more likely six years and you look at how as you've grown in your love for God, you've grown in your obedience, you'll, you'll look at yourself and what you're doing or not doing at this point in life and you'll go, good grief, I could have never, like if you had told me six years ago that then I'd be doing this, I would have said you're nuts. 
But now, not only am I doing it, I want to. It's remarkable. Okay, well, since the beginning of Advent, what I have been saying as we talked about the gospel, and I've said it again and again and again and again, and if you think it feels redundant to you, I do this three times every weekend, okay? It's redundant on purpose. Because I want us to get our heads and hearts and then lives around the idea that the gospel is not just the good news that God and through Christ Jesus is making me and is making you as a collection of individuals new. It's awesome. It's amazing. I personally really am thrilled by that. But that's small and it's way too small. The gospel is the good news that God in and through Christ Jesus is making absolutely everything new and that that is a process that he himself and only he can do it will complete upon his return. But, and here's the part we've been focused on, it's a process that between this day and that day, He wants to engage us in. He wants to pull us into. He wants to use us in. He wants us to be a part of. As we learn how to live as the renewing agents of God. As those who by the power of the Spirit, who in obedience, hear that to God's Word, And in community with one another, learn how to do what? Something incredibly unnatural. We learn how to wake up every single day and then with greater and greater authenticity as we move through life and fall greater and greater in love with God to wake up in the morning and to say, you know, good morning, Lord, because A, it's the morning and B, He's the Lord. So we just go with that. But then beyond that, God, here's what I want to do today. And I I know that I'm not going to do it perfectly, but I want to do it more perfectly than I did yesterday. Not because I'm trying to earn something from you, but because I am yours and you are mine. And that moves me. I want to. I want to do it perfectly. I won't, but I want to. And then tomorrow more perfectly. Here's what I want to do. I want to violate my every instinct. I want to to just crush my every native impulse, which is to do what? Honestly, live this day for me. So that I can live this day for you. So then how do you want to use me as your agent of renewal in my family, in my office, in my school, in the city, in the world? How do you want to do that? Or maybe to put it a little bit differently, maybe this will help. How do you want to use me, albeit very, very imperfectly, got it, as the presence of Jesus in my family, in my office, in my school, in this city and in the world as the one through whom, and this will shock the whole of heaven and some of earth, if or when you do this, through whom maybe you bring the the compassion of Jesus, or maybe you bring the the mercy of Jesus, or the selflessness of Jesus, or the service of Jesus, or the wisdom of Jesus, or the gospel of Jesus, or the humility of Jesus, or the perspective of Jesus. How do you want me to function as your hands and feet and heart and mouth today in every circumstance in which you providentially place me? So how do we do that? That's what we've been talking about since the beginning of Advent. And as I said, what we're going to talk about today is the role of our obedience to the law of God, think Ten Commandments, okay, as a part of that effort. And what I want you to walk away understanding is that, all right, when it comes to living as the renewing agent of God, yeah, man, obedience to God's law actually matters, and it really matters, and the math on this is simple. It matters because the law of God reflects the nature and character of the one who gave the law. It flowed out of him, did it not? And so then what happens? Well, when we in love, empowered by the Spirit and in community with one another, imperfectly, but there's grace for that, obey his law, 
than the nature and the character of our invisible God that we want to make known and make seen is in fact made seen at least in part. How? Through us. Made seen through us. So with all that in mind, here's what Jesus begins to do with us today. And I say begins to do because when you get to your personal worship tomorrow, you'll see we'll finish the conversation next week. But what he begins to do is to take up some of these areas of life, some of these laws that we ought to obey, and he begins to bring them to us and go, here, here's a great opportunity to make me known. Oh, by the way, here, if you can do this, this would be a great opportunity to make me known. And incidentally, as you grow in your love for me and I empower you, if you do this, here's a great opportunity to make me known. And so Jesus says in Matthew 5, beginning in verse 23, he says, you have heard it said, that it, or you have heard that it was said, rather, to those of old. And now what he's going to do is he's going to talk about three different laws, three different areas of life. So anger, lust, truthfulness. And what he does is he takes his original audience that he's teaching down by the Sea of Galilee in the first century, and by extension, all the rest of us, back into the Old Testament. And he goes to Exodus chapter 20, and he goes to the Ten Commandments. And he pulls out the three commandments that most particularly deal with those three areas. And effectively, what he says to those guys is you have not interpreted these laws properly. And here's why, because they have the same instincts we do, which is what? I want to minimize all requirements as much as I can. And so I want to take God's law and I want to make it as narrow as I can possibly make it so that it's as easy as it possibly can be for me to say, well, yeah, of course, I don't, you know, I don't do that. And what Jesus does is he comes and says, not so fast, you know, it's not that narrow. And he blows that up, which is uncomfortable. Why? Because it puts us on the hook. (laughs) But there's grace for that. There's forgiveness for that in Jesus. He comes to us with a far greater interpretation, much broader than anything we would certainly come up with. But what does that create for us? Not far greater guilt. Not far greater shame. We gave that stuff away. Far greater opportunity to shine. Far greater opportunity to do the very thing that He calls us earlier in the Sermon on the Mount to be, which is what? Salt and light. And so Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, and here we go, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. And he says, and you guys feel pretty good about that because, you know, chances are at least you haven't murdered anyone out here, but not so fast. He continues, he says, but I say to you that everyone who is what? Who is angry with his brother, even if that anger doesn't lead to murder out here, okay, will still be liable to judgment. Why? Because you've murdered him in here. It's an in here standard too. And then he continues, and he says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, and I just want you to think about how low the standard of this is. I mean, this is pretty tame. You fool, okay? Now just think about yourself, think about traffic, think about some of the things that you've thought, or maybe even said, then your kids pick up on it, and it's really, it's embarrassing. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to what? Because we don't speak in this kind of language. To the, good that you're seated, hell of fire. How do you like that? 
And you say, well, that's it, then I guess I'm doomed because, you know, I'm just driving here today. I'm, I'm you fooling people or worse. <laughs> well, no, you're not doomed if you have faith in Christ. That's the beauty of the gospel is he took my doom and yours that you might be free of that. But here's what you're not free of. Here's what I'm not free of, pursuit of that standard. It is a big standard. Because what Jesus is doing is He's coming and He's going, no, 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 let me tell you what the law really means. Let me give you what the standard actually is so that you can embrace it as an opportunity. So the standard is this, no murder out here or in here. And if you know the life of Jesus, then maybe you're thinking, yeah, but wait a minute, because Jesus gets pretty angry at times, does He not? I mean, He you know, flipped tables over angry. He excoriates the religious leaders of the Jews. He doesn't just call them fools. By the way, He does call His disciples foolish a couple of times. He calls them a brood of vipers. I mean, that's probably not where you go in traffic, but just, just know this. That was like about as insulting as he could possibly be. So what do you do with that? Well, you lay it down alongside what Jesus is saying, and then you learn from it. And you learn, first of all, from it, that there are things that we actually ought to be angry about. There really are. There is a righteous indignation that when our hearts are like the heart of our Savior, man, it's inflaming. Jesus gets angry about that. He gets angry about sin. He gets angry about death. He gets angry about injustice. He gets angry about oppression and equity. All of these different things that honestly we should not be passionless about, but full of passion. So I think we learned that, but I think it's pretty evident as well when you lay that down alongside what he's just said. Okay, that kind of anger, sin, death, all that stuff, that's not what he's talking about at all. Clearly what he's talking about, and the examples that he gives us next will make this clear, is the kind of anger, and all of us know this kind of anger. It's the kind of anger that wells up within us. It's almost irrepressible, isn't it? It wells up within us when who's offended? Somebody else out there by injustice? Nope. That's when we should be passionate, but it's, it's when it happens to us. When, when we're the one who's hurt, when, when we're the one who's slandered, when we're the one that somebody writes something about on the internet, which is astonishing, honestly, to me. It really is. When we're gossiped about, when we're victimized, when we're mistreated, when we're abused, okay, listen, there is no problem with passion then. That's the kind of anger, incidentally, that leads to murder out here and far more frequently in here. That's what the Lord is targeting. His examples make it clear. He goes on, verse 23. He says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar, and it'd be helpful for you to remember that he's in Galilee, and the altar that he's talking about is 80 miles away. It's the altar in the temple in the city of Jerusalem. And so what he's saying is, if after walking 80 miles, because they walked in those days, with your gift to the temple in Jerusalem, and then waiting in a line that felt like it was 80 miles long, to bring your gift to the altar. Okay, if after all of that, you finally get all the way up to the altar and you're actually in the process of offering your gift at the altar and there you suddenly and inconveniently remember that your brother has something against you. Well, you know what? Good grief. You walked 80 miles to get there. You stood in line for like three hours. You had to send your kids off to get you snacks because you were starving just to make it through. You finally get all the way up to the line. You're there with the priest. You give him the gift. You know, he's going to say, just do the deal, go home, and then immediately address your brother. 
This would be a bummer. That's not what he says. He says, leave your gift there before the altar and walk 80 miles back to Galilee and first be reconciled to your brother and then come all the way back again and offer your gift. Kind of feel like maybe he feels pretty passionately about this. Maybe as you look at the priority list of the Lord, you realize, man, that list is a little different maybe than my own. And now he adds the element of haste and of a willingness to compromise to make it work. He says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge then hand you over to the guard and then you be put into debtor's prison is what he's envisioning here. And so you would have been thrown into debtor's prison until your family and friends and anybody else you could get to chip in could scrounge up enough money to pay off your debt. At that point, you'd be released. He says, truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. And then if you know Matthew's gospel and you just skip ahead to Matthew 18, there he says effectively the same thing to those of us who have been offended by someone else. And so then he's not, there he's not talking about, well, you know, if you've offended someone else and you know that they've been offended by you, you need now to pursue them and to do whatever is within reason to try to work it out. Then he's saying, hey, you know what? If you're the offended one and they haven't come to you, Go to them. And he lays out this process by which to pursue reconciliation. So what is Jesus saying about all this? He's saying, number one, we need to be angry about the right things and to test our hearts in that regard. Number two, if we know that we've offended somebody, and chances are we do, yeah, we need to swallow our pride, man. And with haste, we need to make it a matter of priority to go and to address that person and, and to humble ourselves and to apologize and to own our part of it. And it will probably only be a part of it, won't it? I mean, every married couple knows it's never all the other person. Now, we won't ever admit that, but it's true. Nevertheless, pursue. If you're the one who's been offended and they haven't pursued you, Okay, well, don't use that as a reason to get more angry. Go pursue them. But here's the deal. Even if you can't work it out, and sometimes in this broken world, you can't. It's like you're speaking Chinese, and they're speaking Russian, and it isn't happening, and even with a third party, it's not helpful. Well, then do what with all of the stuff in here? Oh, just let it destroy you. No. Pay the price necessary to let it go. If not for your own good, then for the sake of your mission as a renewing agent of God, I would say to you, can you imagine a better or more clear way of reflecting the nature and character of our God who in love gave His Son to pay the price for the offenses we've committed against Him so that He could give us grace and mercy and forgiveness than by extending that same offer to some other completely unworthy and undeserving person. And here's what happens, you know, as you cultivate your relationship with the Lord, as, you, as your little finite mind and mine 
comes to grasp more and more the infinite measure of His grace and of His mercy and of His love and all that He's forgiven and all that He's done for us, what, what that awakens within me and within you is the capacity to do what previously we didn't think we'd be able to do, which is in fact to lay it down, to forgive it, to let it go. And what we find is that we're the ones who are healed by this. Listen, when it comes to forgiveness, the only question is how many times do you want to be victimized? Once? Or then a hundred thousand more is every time you see that person not having let it go. Man, what do you do? Oh, you just refight the argument. You, you remake your case, don't you? I'm great at that. Laying out every reason why I have a right and why I'm justified in my anger and why I'm good. Grief, it will destroy you. Bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other guy to die. It doesn't work. Let it go. And then get up the next day, because here's what you'll find. You got more to let go. (laughs) And then let it go again. And then you get up the next day, because here's what you discover, letting it go. It's not all in one position. You know, it's like, here, I let it go once. And then you wake up and go, yeah, maybe I didn't, you know. Let it go, let it go, let it go until it's actually gone. So, when it comes to living as the renewing agents of God, obedience matters. And not just in the area of anger, so Jesus continues. And He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And here again, He's saying, you know, you probably feel pretty good about yourself because chances are, with your narrow interpretation, you haven't violated this law. You haven't done it out here. Yeah, but it's not just an out there kind of a thing. So He continues. He says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And like, here's what you want to say. Like, you read that, and you just think about that, and that resonates, and it bounces around in your brain. And in our day, and in our age, and in our city, in which there's a whole industry built on this, and it's not a small one. And you think, come on, man. I mean, is he actually serious about that, or is that just like a first century thing? I mean, is he really Oh, he's serious. Listen to the language that he uses next. And he's not saying go do this literally. He's using this hyperbolic, this exaggerated language on purpose to make the point that he's actually really serious. And it sounds crazy. He says, but I say to you that everyone, so let's rehearse, who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then he says, if your right eye, which is at least one of the two parts of your body that you use to look lustfully at somebody, causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away for it is better that you lose one of your members than that the whole body be thrown into, pause for effect, hell. Oh my goodness. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of the members of your body than that the whole body be thrown into hell. And, you know, I mean, I I guess we're doomed, right? Pretty much undone by that. No. In Christ Jesus took your doom. But this is not a low standard. Jesus is saying, okay, don't commit adultery out here and don't 
don't, don't do it in here. And if you want to go all in on crazy for a second, I mean, we might as well just put all crazy on the table right now in regard to this subject. Okay, expand it for the whole biblical ethic of sex. Okay, so the sexual biblical ethic is sex is for married people. Just, just let that kind of bounce around for a minute. It's nuts, isn't it? But I want you to think about two things. One is the opportunity. You want to be salt? You want to be light? Okay, so when you in love, by the power of the Spirit, adhere to the sexual ethic of the Bible, which seems staid, which seems dated, which seems archaic, which seems crazy, but it's not, as we'll see, you shine. It's unbelievable how you'll stand out. It's amazing how the nature and character, and more than that, value of your God will be made visible by that. And here's the other thing. You'll start seeing the shackles fall off of you in this area of life. See, one of the great ironies, I think, about sex is that God comes to us. I mean, He's the designer of it. He's the one who understands not just its purposes, but its power. And He gives us a playground to play in, if you will. And He says, within this playground, be free. And within this playground, alone is freedom. And so what we do, you know, is we disregard His playground. And 99.9% of us do that, right? And then we go outside of the boundaries of His playground. And outside of the boundaries of His playground in pursuit of freedom. What do we find? Is it freedom, really? I mean, is it actually? It's not. It's hurt. It's regret. It's addiction. It's all kinds of things that God's going, hey, I know it sounds archaic, but let me just tell you by experience, nine times out of ten when somebody comes to their pastor and says, I need to talk to you about something in my past, okay, it's not about the DUI they got in college. It's not it. Cheated on my taxes. I've never actually heard that for the record, but that's not it either. I smoked marijuana in high school, and it's been eating me up all of this time. No, it hasn't, and don't do that, okay? But... It is almost always this. Why? Because it's different. It's just different. Guys, as I've said in the past, you know, sex is not what we think that we want for it to be. What we want to do is narrow it down. We want to skinny it down to this physical activity. I ate a sandwich, and I can eat at any restaurant I want, incidentally. So that's what I did, and I went for a run, and I can run down any street I want. And then, you know, then I had sex with somebody, and I can do that, and it's just the same thing and no big deal. And Jesus is coming to us and going, hey, you know what? Big deal. And if you don't believe me, just ask somebody 10 years your senior. And if they're really honest with you, There's something to learn there. And he's saying it's a big deal out here. And hear this, it's a big deal in here. It just is. But we isolate, we hide, we deny, we reject, and we enslave ourselves. And he's calling us out of that and saying, listen, shame, guilt, that's what Jesus took. And freedom is found in him. 
But it is a big deal. And so if you did your personal worship this week, you know that the next couple of verses deal with divorce. And you know that Jesus identifies adultery as one of the two New Testament grounds for divorce, the other one being abandonment by an unbeliever. And Paul gives us that one. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to get divorced. Please hear that. And I've seen a lot of couples work through it, and they're thankful that they worked through it. But it's not a little thing. And divorce is all of its own subject. I think it's mostly given just illustratively here, so I'm not going to get into it because I'll tell you it's very complex to now begin to discuss because as soon as you start talking about it, you have to start answering questions like, well, what is adultery? Because it's not just out here. I think we're clear on that part thus far. So then how does that fit whatever unique circumstance that you're dealing with is? What is abandonment? Can I do that and still live with you? Like, I mean, what, what, is, what does that mean? Are there any circumstances under which somebody who professes at least to be a believer can be treated as an unbeliever? Maybe because they've, they've rejected the intervention of the church and the wisdom of the elders who are saying, hey, here's what you need to do to make things right with your husband or with your wife. Can you do that? And then, then can you have abandonment by an unbeliever for somebody who professes? Do you see how complicated this is? It's best dealt with on a case-by-case basis. But those are the kinds of things to think about. However, I think the point in this context is more or less illustrative that it's that whatever it is it's not a little thing and living as the renewing agents of god guys gives us the opportunity to take all of our failures in this area and offload them on jesus (laughs) that's wonderful and then by the power of his spirit as a renewed person failingly and imperfectly to strive in love as we grow in our relationship with Him to shine in this area and to know freedom in the process. So then he continues, verse 33, comes to truthfulness. He says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, Jesus says, Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your own head. And here's the illustration, for you cannot make one hair white or black. I mean, you can dye it, and then the roots grow in. We know this. That's it. You don't even control that is the point. But instead, here's the standard. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from, in another extreme-sounding word, evil. So here's what Jesus isn't saying. He's not saying that next time you get a subpoena and you have to go to court, you have to give a deposition, and hopefully that you won't have to do that. But, you know, it happens. And they say, all right, raise your right hand. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God? He's not saying you can't do that. And in fact, as you begin to read through the Bible and you just look for oaths, you find God Almighty taking an oath. He takes an oath and He swears by Himself. There's no higher object. Jesus, an oath. Paul, an oath. As you look through the law of God, there are a couple of instances in which, in certain situations, God requires the people involved in those situations to actually take an oath. 
So that's not what he's talking about. What he's doing is he's targeting a problem in his particular society where these people were trying to create some oaths that they didn't really have to keep because they were not oaths in which they swore to God. And so, you know, I'm in a business deal with you, and I really want you to think that I'm going to do what I'm telling you that I'm going to do, but inside I'm kind of reserving, you know, like maybe I'm not going to do what I'm telling you going to do. I mean, I might, but I might not. So I'm certainly not going to swear to God that I'm going to do it because now I'm stuck. So here's what I'll do. I'll swear by heaven, wink, wink, or by earth, or by Jerusalem, or by my, I'm getting more white hairs, head. So I kind of keep my options open, you know? I mean, it might be the truth, or maybe it'll be something else, and Jesus is disgusted. It's like, that's not the way it works for my people. Why? Because we belong to the one who is himself the truth. And what is our calling? It is in love to reflect him. How? We'll mess it up at times, and there's grace for that. But by pursuing radically truthful lives, by doing what we say we're going to do every time, by not doing what we, not, we say we're not going to do every time, and in those moments when something happens that literally prevents us from doing it, coming forward to the person who's expecting something different and working it out, letting them know, even when it's very costly. And you say, well, good grief, I'm doomed. <laughs> no, Jesus took your doom. That's the glorious part. That's, that's amazing. And all of the guilt and shame attached to it. But living as the renewing agents of God, man, obedience is right there in the middle of it. That law that we obey reflects the nature and character of our God. And incidentally, that's the goal. Make the invisible visible imperfectly but through our pursuit of obedience to His command. So with all that in mind, before we come to the table, uh, let me just ask you, are you growing in your love for God? Because again, that's sort of the foundation of the whole conversation. I mean, if that isn't there, then, you know, it's like that's, that's the thing to deal with. So as you look back six weeks, or let's go back six months, or maybe even six years, do you see that progress? Can you say, man, yeah, like I can't believe I do that, and I actually want to do this. Like six years ago, I would have said, you're nuts if you told me that I'd be involved with fill in the blank. Like if you charted it out, how, how did it go? Like is it, is it up and has it flatlined? Is it, is it still going up? Is it going up but only very incrementally? Is it going down? What is it? Because here's the deal. There's grace for that. And there's an opportunity to repent of that to renew and to say, you know, Lord, I have declined or flatlined or whatever. And I want to pursue you with my whole heart. I want to engage with you daily in, in, in the disciplines by which you have ordained. I communicate with you and personal worship and whatnot. It's a call to come back, really. And that's a wonderful call. Secondly, what makes you angry? Because it, it seems to me that we ought to have some pretty big passions about the things that Jesus was passionate about. Are you angered by what made him angry? Is there somebody who's angry with you? And you know it. And you need to pursue them. 
Is there somebody that you're angry with? And it's all in here. And as soon as I start saying this, you start making your case again. It's it's like it's so human. I, I get it. All of the reasons why you've got to be kidding me I need to go talk to them or, or I need to find a reasonable way to work this out or I need to at least make attempt to do that. And then if I can't, I have to let it go? Yeah. Thirdly, the sexual ethic of the Bible is sex is for married people out there in here. So what does that require of you? What is it? Because whatever it is, what is this a call to? Oh, to be shameful about it, to feel guilty about it, to, oh, you know, now I feel like a, you know, a crud. And no, it's a call to freedom. It's a call to rid yourself of those things. It's a call to come out of your isolation and to realize that church is a shame-free environment where you can be broken and say, you know what, I've got a sex addiction, for example. Because a lot of us do. Far more than who admit it and to get some help. And then lastly, where are you failing to be radically truthful? That's an easy one, isn't it? Like you hear that and you go, yeah, I know. (laughs) It just, you do. So where is that? Because we're called to reflect and we don't do it perfectly. But that's what this table reminds us that there's forgiveness for. The nature and character of the perfectly truthful one, which is our privilege. And as we grow in love for Him, hey, here's the deal. It's what we want to do. It's what we want to do. So we have the opportunity today to come to the table. And as I say, every time we do this, this is a table for the forgiven. What does that mean? It means that if you're a believer in Christ, you've had the aha moment, you realized, uh-oh, I'm doomed. But that Jesus has taken your doom and you've claimed His life, sufferings, death, burial, and resurrection as the full payment and satisfaction of the entire cost that it took for God to extend mercy and grace and forgiveness to you, then by all means come to this table. But if you have not done that, then don't come to the table, but instead you know, realize that that's as freely available to you as it is to anyone else. And maybe today is the day for you to go, wow, yeah, I think I'm, I'd, I'd like in on that. <laughs> How do I do that? It's a table of forgiveness. So it's a table that requires repentance. It's not just something we do once a month and then we're kind of going, oh yeah, we're doing that today. You know, and you're thinking about lunch and you're sort of hurrying the line along. Somebody get up and be first so we can get it moving. You know, nobody has those thoughts. Liar, liar, pants on fire, right? You're not being truthful. All right. That's not the way it works. It's a sacred thing. These are the emblems of your salvation. You meet with the Lord spiritually at this table. It's a table of forgiveness, which means automatically, therefore, then what? You repent before you come. And when you grab the elements, having repented to return, you don't return in shame. And you don't return in guilt. You leave that behind. The Lord takes that from you. And then lastly, it's a, it's a unified table. And what I mean by that is you don't have to be a member of this church. You just have to be a member of the body of Christ somewhere. But a body is connected, is it not? And it functions together, typically. And when it doesn't, that's a problem. <laughs> so then what's the implication? That if within the body of Christ, there's somebody in whom or with whom you've got a broken relationship, all right, they're angry with you and you know it, you don't want to deal with it, or you're angry with them and you know it and you don't want to deal with it. What is the table calling you to do before you come? Unlikely you'll solve it before today is over, okay? 
but it's prompting you in grace to go and to deal with it and to reflect Christ in the doing of it and to be healed, frankly, in the process. So if that's the case, then don't come to the table. But by all means, otherwise, this is for you and it is a wondrous thing. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And when he does, all things new. I'm going to pray and our elders will come forward. Take your time. Do business with the Lord and then come when you're ready. Okay? Father, we thank you that, um, that you are a God who loves and that in love you gave and that you gave to pay the price to cover over the sin of people who offended you. Lord, you have given us what we do not deserve in your mercy and in your grace and in your love and in your Son. But indeed, you have given us and gratefully we accept. I pray, Lord, that we would sense our need, that we would know what you're saying, that we would turn in whatever way that we need to turn away from something that we might turn toward you. I pray that, God, by your Spirit, you would thrill our hearts with the reality of your love and that we would know it and smell it and feel it and taste it and crunch it between our teeth as we take the emblems of it into our body, that we would rise in freedom and return to our seats in joy. Do these things because that's what you paid the price that we might enjoy. Do this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.